What makes a good corporate carve-out? What are the drivers for activity and investment in these deals in the current market? And where does veteran carve-outs firm Aurelius see opportunities coming up? We'll be discussing all of this and more in today's episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello, listener, and welcome again to the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. My name is Harriet Matthews. I'm funds editor at Merger Market, and I'll be your host for today. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about corporate carve-outs, focusing on sponsor appetite for these transactions and drivers for deal flow. We'll be hearing from Tristan Nagler, partner at Aurelius, later in the episode. But before that, I'm pleased to welcome my colleague Minho, private equity reporter at Merge Market, to introduce the, the topic with me today. Min, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Good to have you here. Um, now, I wondered if you can give our listeners a bit of an idea of how corporate carver activity is looking in the year to date uh, in terms of what merge market data is telling us. Uh, so year to date, um, our understanding from merger market data is that we have seen 190 billion euros of uh, announced deals. Uh, that includes pending um, and completed um, across EMEA. And um, just in September and October alone, we have seen 21 billion and 19 billion respectively. Um, And just on particular markets, um, uh, I was speaking to a um, uh, carve-out specialist in Germany, um, and he mentioned, for example, just in Q2 alone, there were around 60% of corporates uh, listed companies that have uh, mentioned some sort of uh, portfolio realignment. So perhaps a bit of carve out potential um, uh, on that front. And of course, uh, not all data may be captured necessarily. There's obviously a lot of stealth processes that we may hear about uh, later on um, uh, throughout the coming uh, quarters. So very interesting indeed. Yeah, that's quite an impressive figure in terms of volume in a year when M&A is um, obviously down globally for various reasons our listeners will be well well versed in. But now, I'm aware not all of that uh, 190 billion euro figure is um, just sponsor activity, but um, you know it is still an impressive figure. Can you give a few examples, Min, of what has kind of topped that figure up in terms of kind of large cap, um, large cap activity? I think uh, some of the most significant deals, uh, upcoming or otherwise, uh, is uh, definitely the BASF, um, the German chemicals group and um, they've announced um, uh, carf- they've announced uh, portfolio divestments that are valued um, up to 10 billion so you know there's talks about separation of oil, their oil and gas unit uh, Wintershaw environmental catalysts and metal solution paint and coatings nutrition and health um, on the telecoms TMT front uh, we have uh, Altis uh, which has been talking about selling their digital advertising business, Teeds. I think that's worth three billion. The list, go- list goes on. Right. Yes. And, um, you know, 
in in this environment in particular, it's impressive that those kind of sizes of deals are are getting done. But I suppose in many cases they they have to. You mentioned um, you had a source talking about. Um, the number of listed companies that were looking to do carve-outs. And um, I wonder if you can talk a bit about the kind of drivers behind carve-outs. Why, why are corporates selling in the current environment? What are you, what are you hearing as, as motivations generally? Well, I suppose there are various factors. Um, so it's hard to put a broad brush, um, paint a broad brush onto this. But um, obviously, there are companies uh, that are struggling in their core businesses, and they need to raise capital, um, uh, um, especially as financing uh, for debts is going up. There's structural trends. Obviously, there's transition into um, electric mobility. Um, that, and that requires funding. Um, and so that's been uh, driving quite a few um, activity. Um, you know, just to give some examples, uh, Siemens um, has for the past few years um, um, have been focusing more on uh, digital tools for industrials, um, you know, and they're moving away from, um, you know, uh, what they previously invested in, whether that might be in the kind of white goods, washing machines, etc. And then uh, we've obviously seen as well the likes of ThyssenKrupp, um, which are talking about selling their submarine and marine systems unit and their steel unit, um, among many others, as they are focused on paying down their debt. So it's um, various um, um, factors that are leading to this um, trend. Interesting. I think that that refocusing, um, when you talked about e-mobility, for example, we do hear a lot about corporates buying to kind of get exposure to startups with tech in that area. We hear about corporates partnering with um, specific funds that give them exposure to, to deal flow and new technologies. But it's interesting to think of it from the other side, sort of how do we get away from some of the things that are maybe not as as core in terms of a focus, whether it's to do with, um, you know, ESG, energy transition or, or other, other yeah. factors, as you've been saying. It's uh, quite interesting because um, I was um, speaking to um, um, one Carvel uh, focus fund, and they were saying that uh, um, in at least in auto, or uh, um, there are opportunities to sign NDAs um, on in, uh, internal combustion uh, units um, every day, um, every hour of the day. Um, just because there are so many um, um, people talking about electric um, uh, mobility and the need to transit away from um, ICUs. Yeah, I suppose there's a bigger question of what happens to those businesses. Can private equity pivot them into something else or kind of keep them going in the meantime while we still need um, you know, combustion engines and corresponding suppliers and parts for the auto industry. Um, yeah, super, super interesting question. And thinking about, um, you know, th there's plenty of reasons why um, why a corporate might be divesting, but there's also a lot of reasons why, um, you know, sponsors or otherwise might want to buy these assets, especially in an environment where there's more emphasis on, um, you know, potentially value investing and value creation. Are we seeing competition hot up for these kinds of assets typically based on, you know, processes you've been covering, for example, Min? Uh, we have seen um, 
a few uh, players um, uh, who are looking uh, very actively in the European market. Um, I guess there's the uh, list, um, as you will find out, you know, Aurelius um, are quite active in this market. Um, Epirus, um, we have uh, Triton, um, uh, and you know the list goes on. But what's been actually quite interesting is that anecdotally, at least for me, I've seen some US players who are looking slightly more actively in the European market. Um, perhaps some of these US funds think that the Europeans don't have the same level of capabilities to roll up their sleeve to do the nitty gritty complex transactions um, um, that involve anything from the provision of steam and wastewater treatment contracts, IT setups, etc. So um, one interesting um, fund that uh, I think we've been looking quite closely at and where we're seeing a lot more of the names popping up is One Rock. Um, they've obviously been involved in um, Axo Nobel carve-outs um, and then even beyond carve-out situations, they are working on um, the likes of uh, uh, Princess Group um, and they've recently bought the um, packaging business from uh, Fendo uh, Constant uh, Constantia Flexibles. So it's, uh, it's quite uh, an interesting mix. Um, and in Europe, we you know have um, the likes of Triton, who are already uh, very active in the scenes. They've been uh, working with Siemens, SKF, Bosch, bought a few assets um, from them in recent uh, years. Yeah, interesting. And obviously, we had um, PAI winning that um, IFF carve out earlier in the year as well. Um, but yeah, I guess it's all down to the, the kind of um, operational expertise, which we will hear more from, of course, in our interview with Tristan Nagler from Aurelius. Um, for those of you who may not be familiar with Tristan, he is a partner at Aurelius, who's been with the firm for almost 10 years. He leads their UK and Ireland activities. We sat down to talk all things carve-outs, um, and we will listen to that interview now, and then Min and I will be back afterwards to discuss some key takeaways. Tristan, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to join. Now, avid listeners to the Unquote Private Equity podcast might actually recall that um, I think you spoke to us on this very topic um, of carve-outs back at the start of 2020. But clearly, to say the least, quite a lot has happened and changed since then. So it's really good to be revisiting this with you today. And, you know, Against that kind of uh, backdrop with everything that has happened over the past few years, particularly since I think the first quarter of 2022, it's fair to say, we've been hearing, you know, that a wave of carve outs is kind of on the way. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, Tristan, would you say activity has picked up? How are you seeing this kind of play out in your deal pipeline? So look, very pleased to be back. Um, and thanks very much for the opportunity to talk about corporate carve out. So I mean, actually, since 2020, um, you know, we have remained 
incredibly active in the corporate carve-out market as a, as a GP. Um, Aurelis is really focused on corporate carve-outs. And when we raised our most recent fund, you know, we, we positioned ourselves as almost sort of corporate carve-out capital because we thought there was a wave of, um, of carve-outs on its way. I, I, and, and, and I think that's very much been borne out. Um, whilst at the moment, the wider M&A market is quite sluggish and, you know, the statistics talk to quite a slow market, we remain very active. And, and when I look at our pipeline across multiple jurisdictions, so I, I sit in the UK, but I've got um, got a business operations across Europe and now into North America. You know, we, we have deal flow from corporates looking to divest uh, non-core assets um, in each of those markets and, and, and many, particularly across Europe, um, you know, are live deal situations. So I'd remain, you know, I'd, I'd remain of a view that um, there is a wave of corporate carve-outs. Um, but I feel like it's it's not I guess not just come it's been it's been growing um, and you know I, I I don't see any let up on the horizon. Yeah, that's interesting given um, the fact that I think M and A in the year to date in Europe is down forty four percent. That's the kind of latest um, statistic that we've we've got on on the merger market side. Um, in terms of you know why you're seeing more carve outs um, or why they're perhaps more appealing in the current market. Um, would you say that's due to a kind of you know shift in emphasis within private equity as a whole to look more at value creation? I know this is something Aurelius has been doing for a while, but would you would you agree with with that you know that shift being part of the reason carve-outs are maybe more popular? Yeah, I think I, I think you need one need to look at sort of why you know why is there what seems to be quite strong activity in this segment of the market, and I think it's both as a result of buyers and sellers. So I think when we talk about buyers like like us. Um, you know, we very much like corporate carve-outs. We use every opportunity to talk about the benefits that they bring, both 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 for an investor, for for the employees and the stakeholders in the business itself, but also for the sellers. And as a result, you know, it might be self-fulfilling that the more we talk about it, the more deal flow sort of comes to us. And and, and you know, and clearly there are many other GPs that also target target corporate carve-outs. So it could be sort of a buyer enthusiasm. And and you're right, you know, the reason we target corporate carve-outs is we do see stronger value creation opportunity than we do, you know, if we were to buy from another GP or from, you know, a family, a family or private shareholder selling their business. We we just see more potential. I think because inherently a corporate carve out is the result of a seller deciding um, after some consideration usually that the business they uh you know that, that sits within their group is no longer core to them. Um, and, and often that thing, you know, that, that decision doesn't happen overnight. It happens over, you know, many months or even years. And as a result of being non-core, the business itself um, often suffers some neglect. And as a result, as a, as a buyer of a neglected business, you have, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to sort of uh, bring it back to its former glory and to sort of really reinvigorate it. So I'd say the buyers are very excited about value creation. I think it's worth just touching though on the seller. You know, why, why do sellers bring these businesses to market? And you know, we see all sorts of reasons why sellers would you know might be motivated to to carve out a business and sell it. You know, sometimes it's about liquidity. Um, they want to generate cash from a sale to um, either sort of pay down debt or or to reinvest into a core business. Uh, they're they're strongly encouraged by their stakeholders, particularly shareholders, to reduce complexity. Often it's to, um, you know this is a one of a number of businesses that they have, and um, the sale allows them to become purer. Or, cl- or clearer or better understood by the capital markets. Um, and, and probably the most current reason I see is, um, you know, often this is an opportunity to take out a lower performing business, a lower margin uh, business, a lower growing business. And, and by doing that, you know, the, the seller seems very smart because they're taking out something that's that's maybe dragging on their overall 
valuation, their overall rating, and thus by taking it out, the rest of their business looks slightly better. Um, it allows the sort of balloon, if you like, to lift as they as they throw a bit of ballast off. Um, and so, whilst you have you know economic value that transfers when you know the buyer buys and the seller sells, often the the overall the seller is is better regarded by stakeholders and enables them to to experience maybe even a re-rating. So I, I think carve outs are sort of you know mutually beneficial, um, and and it brings something that the buyer and the seller both both, both greatly appreciate, and, and hence um, you know I, I see a long a long future for corporate carve out uh, transactions. Absolutely, and just just returning again to the kind of the buy side appeal or the buy side landscape. Um, if we're seeing more you know private equity firms in particular looking at uh, carve outs as a kind of you know a good good option um for them to be deploying their capital into are you seeing the landscape on the kind of deals you look at get more competitive and if so are you changing the way you maybe originate deals or the nature of the deals or or the auctions or processes you're engaging in so look, I, I do think you know when when you analyse the sort of deals that are out there, um, you know ca- uh, corporate carveouts do seem quite vogue and attractive. You know they often, um, you know when ultimately they're exited, they, they've often generated very substantial returns. You know we exited a business called Distrelec uh, that we had bought from a corporate uh, in 2020, and we exited recently to RS Group uh, UK PLC and, and, and made a very very strong return. And deals like that that really catch attention of of competitors, you know, make people think, well, hold on, you know, these, these are really attractive deals. We should we should look at them. So there often is quite a a herd of interest when it when it comes to sort of um, you, you hear a corporate potentially going to divest something. So I think it often does attract you know lots of lots of you know a, a frenzy of interest. But I think um, you know what's what's clear is 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 whilst you know it, it, it's an initial stage in an auction yeah. process, something might look really appealing. The reality is often that you know these are these are often called complex carve outs. Um, there, there's quite a complexity to, to taking a business out of its parent company and acquiring it. Um, it's very different from buying, you know, one GP buying a business from another GP, where it's almost like passing a parcel from one to another. But there's very little um, that gets diminished by the transaction. Whereas in a corporate carve out, you're often taking something incomplete out of its parent and having to then complete it. Um, and hence, that that element of complexity does mean, I think, the conversion of interested parties around the corporate carve out to those who actually get into due diligence and really press on to try and transact. There's a very, very um, sort of, I guess, uh, high high rate of attrition in those sorts of processes. And and I think, you know, we're, we're serious about this. We've been doing it for 20 years at Aurelius. And, and that means, you know, we're, we're rarely surprised by the sort of the sort of problems that are thrown up in these deals. But I think we often hear from competitors that, yeah, that, that's a really nice opportunity, but it's it's too it's too operationally demanding. It's too much like heavy lifting. Um, it's too high risk. These sorts of uh, themes come again and again. So actually, when you come towards the end of a, of a corporate car auction, there's 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 rarely as much competition as you would see in a typical um, secondary buyout, where there's often you know very significant competition right until the end. You know, as an example, we wouldn't, for instance, expect to see say you know a contract race um, or sort of you know sealed bids at uh, you know in five days and and a sort of real race to the line. That's very very rare. You often have to sort of ultimately um, make a decision as, as a seller, pick a party that you trust, and go into a period of exclusivity to try and sort of get get a deal done, recognizing there's a lot of complex issues to to work through. I see. So you know, any deals you're engaging in, it will be kind of very high high conviction. Yeah, exactly. I think you have to build the conviction during the process because again often um it's quite easy at the at the outset to make light of it and say look um yes it's a yes it's a carve out um there's all this preparation that the seller has done that's going to make it really really easy for any any buyer to buy 
you know, we'd welcome your bid. And, and, and therefore it's actually quite easy to sort of, um, take confidence from that position and think, yeah, okay, I, I, I'm sure those, those, those aren't major issues and we can get through them. So let's, let's put a strong bid in and see what happens. And then, and then as you get into the detail, you find, um, actually there, there is some risk, um, attaching to, I don't know, um, maybe, maybe the brand doesn't come with the business. You have to, yeah, you know, maybe change the brand in, in a period of time. So, so, you know, a business is traded on a brand for a while. And in the future, we'll have to trade on a different brand. That's quite a that's quite a risk to overcome. And and whilst the seller can say, guys, you know, don't need to worry too much um, as to buy, you've got to think through, you know, kind of the un, the, un, the uncertainty. Um, so there's quite a lot of uncertainty that needs to be sort of overcome. And and, and ultimately, as you say, I think um, the party that can, you know, get most comfortable with risk um, and either either price for risk or or sort of do sufficient work to. To sort of feel that they can they can take it on and and, and it won't uh, it won't impact them too much um, they they will win the auction. Fascinating. And on that note, what makes a good corporate carve out for you, Tristan, and for your you know your colleagues at Aurelius? Um, are you looking for you know a sort of solid revenue line? Is that enough, or do you need there to be a, a kind of solid uh, management team on board that, that comes with the transaction as well? So look, I think what makes a good corporate carve out is almost the same as what makes any any good kind of yeah. private equity deal. You know, we would be targeting a you know a visa a platform deals for us. Um, so they need need a level of scale, um, and you know, I, I guess relevance in 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 the market. Um, the market needs to have some attractions. Um, you know, often private equity likes to invest into niche, you know, niches um, where there are some sort of barriers to entry to protect you know the business and and ensure that you know we can invest and and there's a worthwhile. A return on investment. Um, and, you know, ideally you look for growth, you know, look for a business that can experience growth on its own. You look for an opportunity to be able to scale the business with, with M&A through buy and build. So all those things are important. I mean, when, when you say, you know, is, re- is revenue enough, you know, here, here's, here's a hundred million revenue opportunity. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's pretty challenging to sort of, um, to feel that's, that's enough. You obviously need to feel that there's real, there's all those other features. Um, but when it comes to the good management team question, I think, you know, that's maybe where there's a slight difference between a corporate carve out and a more traditional, you know, vanilla buyout transaction. And and the reason is, um, you know, when you've got an orphaned business within a large corporate uh, group, it often first of all doesn't have a complete management team. There's maybe not a an independent, I don't know, purchasing chief purchasing officer or chief technology officer. Um, so very very they're likely to be gaps. Um, and then you know often you know the 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 high flyers in a corporate you know aren't necessarily um, keen to join the non core. Uh, division of the larger group, and uh, so as a result, um, you know, they're, they're often, you know, there often isn't a, a, a team fronting it that really has ambition and desire to lead the business into the sort of brave new world. Um, so I'd say, um, you know, typically investors need to bring something themselves, you know, to supplement what um, what the management team themselves can bring. I see. So that's, um, I suppose, many people would say an argument for for private equity being, you know, a good owner for a kind of orphaned, carved out business, just thinking about the kind of the people side of things that you could typically bring. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, at Aurelius, we have a lot of internal capability. And I think I think you do need to bring some capability. I think um, there, there are some who can just go to the market and, and find capability and hire it. Um, we, we, we've chosen over the years to, to build a very substantial internal capability to be able to deploy it um, you know, kind of a, alongside management so that we can work collaboratively um, to, to, to get going and, and ultimately, you know, look to accelerate and, and drive returns in the future. And you, you mentioned a few 
um, factors that you would be looking for, you know, um, scalability, you know, attractive or niche markets, that kind of thing, M&A potential. Um, what does that translate into in terms of sectors or business models or, or even geographies where you're seeing opportunities at the moment? So look, they're, they're really diverse opportunities. I think you know one of the privileges of, of, of the job is is how diverse set of opportunities we're we're, we're introduced to. Um, but I think the, the common the common theme in into this sort of segment into corporate carbouts is we start with a business that a corporate wants to sell. Um, and so when a corporate wants to sell a business, it's usually selling a business that's in a more challenging sector where there's typically less growth. I mean, if the business is in an attractive sector with growth. It's highly unlikely a corporate would sell it. It was hardly, you know, when 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 they deploy best sort of practice of evaluating their portfolio, um, they're highly unlikely to pick the business in the best sector with the best growth and the best cash generation with the best management team. That that surely is what what the definition of their core business is. So inevitably, what what being offered is businesses that others view as non-core and you know less desirable. And so we're typically encountering quite you know often quite difficult sectors or de- sectors that have some sort of um, challenge, you know, transition. So, you know, in automotive, there's lots of opportunity around businesses that are transitioning to to electric, to EV. Uh, in retail, you often see businesses transitioning maybe from bricks and mortar towards omnichannel and, and maybe not quite there. Or in energy, businesses transitioning from older sort of um, uh, older energy sources to, say, renewables. And, and often the businesses aren't aren't quite there or, or the sector hasn't quite matured to the point of being, being uh, of a destination. So, so we're being asked to take a business on and and transition it, and and that that's obviously you know a risk to exactly what will that um, promised land look like, um, how how will EV or omnichannel or renewables look, and how will, will the business that we take on be a, be a winner in that? Um, so that's quite a familiar that's quite a familiar dynamic, and so as a result, you know when you think of private equity and and some of the most attractive sectors sort of, sort of features or business features like i don't know recurring recurring revenue models subscription models you know, these these are these are rarely sort of divested by their corporate sellers it's much more the former um you asked about geographies i mean you know we're, we're, we're playing on a global scale we have european heritage um we've targeted us uh, with recent office opening and and we've invested heavily beyond that so i think sort of geographies it's very international and, and global um and I would say, you know, that I've described quite a lot of the sort of the typical dynamic where corporates are choosing to divest, you know, their non-core. You know, there are occasionally corporate carve-outs when, you know, a corporate is 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 selling something it doesn't necessarily necessarily want to sell. For instance, because there's regulatory pressure to sell a business, um, they're required to sell it for regulatory reasons, or or maybe required to sell it because there's real liquidity pressure of the seller. Um, and then, you know, for for the buyer, there's often opportunities to get into very attractive sectors or business models or geographies. And, you know, we recently bought a business called TM Group um, that was being carved out from Dye and Durham, a Canadian corporate. And it was a very reluctant seller who was required by the UK Competition and Markets Authority to divest. And we feel as a result, we got a very a business with a very attractive model. Um, it was a tech-enabled services company at an attractive entry uh, because of that dynamic. No, really interesting to to hear about the regulatory links and kind of you know how increased regulatory scrutiny could actually be throwing up more opportunities for for you or for similar um, you know similar investors. Now, turning to kind of you know when you've you know you're, you're in the I suppose final stages of uh, you know acquiring a company or at the very least you know you're you're planning how you're going to kind of 
proceed, you know, in terms of capital structure, that kind of thing. I wanted to ask how you actually go about shoring up a company that you're buying in a carve out um, when a deal completes. I suppose a perception around carve outs is sometimes that, um, you know, they could potentially, these businesses could be in slightly weaker financial positions. Um, I don't know if you, you'd agree with that, uh, but, but ultimately, you know, how, how do you shore up those businesses? So let's, let me let me take it in two parts. So in terms of how we shore up a business, so I'd say before the you know before the completion, there's there's a real mutual interest between the buyer and the seller to ensure that the acquired business you know is shored up and and is stood alone outside of its former home you know in a robust way because it's you know it's inherent in everyone's um, uh, sort of um, target that you know that there's a good home for the for the management and for the employees and that all the various stakeholders for business you know can rely on rely on the company. And so there's very close working between buyer and seller to sort of document everything into into an agreement what called the transitional services agreement um and and effectively everyone goes you know really function by function through a business to sort of you know assure that um uh, all the various sort of um, requirements to operate are are set up and and invariably in these sorts of deals you know there's there's maybe a, an IT system for instance that sits with the seller that won't be coming with the buyer that is critical to i don't know to to drive um, all sorts of functionality. There, there might be other sort of ties like HR. Again, HR uh, or, or finance that sits with the buyer, uh, the, the seller, and, and won't be coming uh, to the buyer. Um, and in those sorts of situations, you know, we would work very hard from day one um, alongside the management team to ensure you know a careful build up of, of new capability. So you know that might be hiring uh, capability, that might be um, us us putting some some capability into the business, uh, us entering into new contracts with with new IT providers or HR or finance providers, um, such that you know once those are up and running, you can ultimately sort of sever the tie with the um, the former seller and make the business sort of able to operate. And it's vital everyone wants the business to operate on a seamless basis. So you can't have periods of time where there's no finance, IT, HR. Um, you know that that ultimately doesn't doesn't work out for anyone. So you know you you, you gradually build up capability and you gradually switch off the support from the former parents, such that eventually within six or twelve or twenty four months, the the uh, seller is completely free of of its former company and the buyer has an independent company. Um, so that's sort of part one, and and I, I view it a little bit as sort of building up scaffolding. Um, you know, so that uh, you know you can then dismantle. Uh, you know, dismantle once uh, once the scaffolding is up and running. Um, but I will say, coming to your question about sort of you know weak financial positions, I, I don't think inherently carved out businesses are, are, are in any way weak. I mean, you, you, you can find incredibly valuable uh, corporate carve outs, you know, that are incredibly cash generative, very well capitalized, have substantial net assets, and um, you, you would never look at those businesses as weak. Um, and typically, it's critical, I think, for for the buyer to, to ensure the business is well capitalized and, and for the seller, because it needs to be able to continue to do what it was doing before. Um, and, and to be a you know a trusted counterpart. All, all I would say in terms of why, why you might perceive there to be weaknesses, just sometimes you know, let's say the finance function doesn't come across from the uh, the sellers for buyer. Um, so you know, it might be you buy a business, and you know, for a number of months, the uh, seller is continuing to I don't know issue invoices for for the buyer, or the seller is continuing to collect cash in in bank accounts um, for the buyer. But, but that doesn't indicate to me any any sort of weakness. That's just sort of a transactional relationship, and effectively the seller. Is like a third-party agent uh, helping the, the the buyer until the buyer can set up, you know, new bank accounts or new new frameworks for, you know, issuing invoices. 
And I suppose that kind of brings us to to value creation then. Um, you've mentioned kind of M&A and, and scalability um, as a couple of factors for a good a good carve out, I suppose. Um, but, you know, can you give any examples from your portfolio of either instances where you've done that or where you've pulled kind of other other levers for, for value creation in a carve out or post post carve out? Yeah, so, so as I said earlier, I mean, you know, we we as a as a GP have targeted um, carve outs as a sort of class of deals that bring, you know, we view a very high value creation opportunity. So over the, over the years, we've refined and and developed, you know, a capability to be able to sort of um, spot the spot the levers and ultimately work out how best to pull them to deliver, you know, sustainable improvements in the businesses that we we're able to bring into our portfolio. Um, so we've we've got to you know at, at time of this podcast 150 operational colleagues who work for us full time. So that's kind of part one is we we believe in in house capability and we yes there's many GPs who kind of hire in capability. We like to have that sort of in in house and that enables you know recycling of knowledge. And then we split our capability into a number of different functions and you know we have for instance a procurement and supply chain team, and, and that team um, you know will work before we buy the company talking to the um, I guess a purchasing. Uh, team in the in the in 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 the carve out entity, you know, talk to them about what they do, how the how do they buy, how do they set up their procurement practices, what's their spend, how might there be opportunities, and you know, and I remember one particular example we bought uh, from McKesson, a US corporate, we bought all their UK businesses, and the UK businesses are all in the area of healthcare, and in particular are buying significant um, quantities of pharmaceutical drugs to distribute. Uh, they, they have a distribution business that will twice a day distribute um, drugs to every pharmacy in the UK and every healthcare setting. And, you know, we naturally would assume it's a very substantial business that it would have a, you know, a brilliant procurement set up and um, a very sort of sophisticated supply chain. Um, but nonetheless, you know, we thought it's important to, ch- I guess, to check the lever and, and check whether there is genuine opportunity. And I think our perception was, you know, there could well be opportunity. So we completed the deal um, last year, and then in the you know the last um, eighteen months, worked you know hard with with the purchasing team to just identify ways to improve. And whilst you know maybe there was not as, so much opportunity with the main type of procurement, so pharmaceutical drugs, you know the company were really excellent at how they how they bought those and, and the relationships that they had with with vendors with pharmaceutical companies. There was a huge amount of of indirect spend. So all the other things that they buy, um, you know whether it's IT, whether it's um, uh, by HR services, whether they they buy uh, uh, office space, all these other sort of areas of indirect spend. And, and we found there a very significant opportunity to sort of buy better and to sort of in, you know, put in place better procedures for, for buying. So that's what that's one just one example of a team. So we have there's, there's one other I just thought I'd highlight, which is a sales and marketing team. So we have about 20 people who work in sales and marketing. And again, with every deal that we look at, we um, before we buy the company, we'll sit and have a discussion with the, the, the head of sales, the head of marketing in, in the acquired uh, the company we're going to acquire. And talk to them about sort of so what do they do? How, you know, how do they look at their customers? You know, what are the what are the what are the channels to market and what can what can we do better? And, and a recent example would be Foot Asylum, which we acquired um as a corporate carve out from JD Sports. Um, and that was about 12 months ago. And you know, here we saw you know a really excellent uh, business in marketing. Um, but we, you know, we looked at the channels the business was was operating through, and we we particular, I guess, together spotted an opportunity to to selectively add extra sites to the to the company it, it's a retailer so looking at particular retail sites and how we can together i guess you know facilitate a, you know a, a rollout again for the business because it, it has stopped some years ago so i guess our sales and marketing team have worked very closely with the foot asylum um, organization and as a result we we just recently opened in oxford street i think just opened, recently opened in watford and there's various sort of upgrades and developments that that are coming as a result of sort of that collaboration and so those are just two examples of sort of 
uh, operational levers. And there are so many others across finance and HR and, and general sort of operational excellence. Um, and, and, and really, if you have the playbooks and you have time and you have capital and a, and a kind of good collaboration with the management team, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of potential um, that can be, can be brought from these. Um, you know, and, and ultimately, it can, it can very often be a sustained um, you know, uplift in a business's performance that comes from this sort of collaboration. And I think it's worth, lastly, just mentioning ESG. Um, you know, when you are kind of assessing an opportunity, what you know potential elements of ESG are usually on your mind, and, and how do you kind of get comfortable with these? I suppose it depends on the type of business you're maybe acquiring, but it would be great to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'd say again. I, here, I probably see it's like less difference between a corporate carve out and, and sort of, a, you know, a more standard private equity investment. You know, we, we all have a duty to our various stakeholders to, to run a thorough due diligence screen for any ESG issues to identify any areas of concern, which could, you know, ultimately give rise to a deal breaker. So uh, a basis on which we wouldn't be willing to invest or, you know, um, a, a, an area of concern that we can potentially mitigate. Um, and so I'd say, you know, there's a, there's a generalized approach at Aurelius, you know, we have, we have a head of ESG and we have a, we have a framework for, um, identifying and then assessing risk. And we would do that in, in, in any deal. I think, you know, the advantage of a corporate car that is often there is a, there is a scope as the owner of a new business that's, that, that, that needs some, some shoring up, but we can build, um, some capability, you know, new capability. We don't always necessarily take on everything that's coming from the seller. Um, we also need to be cognizant, um, you know, as we stand the business up, you know, where I don't know where we might establish new functions if we're going to take something offshore into a new market. You know, what are the implications of that and making that sort of decision? But I say fundamentally, I don't see the ESG sort of screen um, for, for corporate car. That's as, as so different from any other deal. And so, you know, we would typically look at. I don't know the procurement practices and exactly where are they procuring and what are they procuring. You know, if there's if there's an element of production or manufacturing, again, looking at how they um, how how they how they use energy and the sort of any consequences to the environment of that, um, how how they then operate and go to market and and deliver uh, you know their, their their service or their product and any implications there. So so we kind of take a holistic approach and um, you know naturally there, again there will be corporates looking to sell off businesses that that are, are slightly. Less straightforward um, uh, from an ESG standpoint, um, and I guess you know we we would always have an open mind to those. But fundamentally, we have you know stakeholders and and kind of ethical frameworks ourselves that mean you know we would have to understand you know is this appropriate, and if if so, can we take the business on on a journey um, and and you know ultimately reduce some of the practices that are are more concerning, and ultimately take the business into a sort of much much stronger place from an ESG standpoint. I see. And you typically find you have access to the information you, you need in, in those situations to make those decisions. Yeah, I think, I mean, I say ESG has become so important to us all that I think it becomes, you know, deeply concerning if you're, if you're, if you're being told to take on responsibility, responsibility for a business and you aren't being given sufficient information to understand, you know, the risks. Um, and I think with, you know, whilst we, we can obviously um, take a view on certain things, you know, a market risk or a Financial risk, um, operational risk. You know, we can back ourselves in some of those areas, depending how we how we structure the deal. Um, ESG risk, I think, would be a you know would be a I say a deal breaker if we're simply not getting uh, satisfaction, but we really understand you know the risk that we're running there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's all we have time for now. But thank you so much, Tristan, for taking the time to speak to me. Um, it's been fascinating to hear your insights on all things corporate carveouts. I'm really grateful. Thank you very much. It's a subject that um, you know, many of us are very passionate about. And yeah, um, please watch the space. We hope to be announcing a few more corporate carve-outs before too long. 
Absolutely. Look forward to it. Thanks for your time, Tristan. Thank you to Tristan for taking the time to speak to me. I, I really enjoyed um, getting the kind of, you know, inside track in, in a sense on uh, on how he and Aurelius approach carve-outs. I thought it was interesting, and I don't know if you'd agree, Min, that one of the things he mentioned was just how high a rate of attrition there is when it comes to the bidders who are perhaps in a process or around a carve-out. Initially, he said these processes are more complex, they often take longer. Does that line up with what you kind of typically see in, in the market in terms of the kind of bidders that kind of make it, you know, go the, the whole way with, um, with carve-outs? Um, yeah, so I think that um, um, uh, there's some uh, there's a lot of truths to that, um, but again, I think there's a lot of nuances you know around carve outs. Perhaps uh, there's a lot of people who think that carve outs it's very easy to make money. That's why everyone make, uh, likes carve outs, but there are differences. Um, in terms of blue chips and, um, and then the amount of work you have to do. For example, there are blue chips who are, who package, um, their assets very nicely, um, uh, with everything intact, um, separate balance sheets, uh, separate, um, uh, IT functions, uh, management, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, of course, with a, nice ribbon on top when they hold a hand over to you. But then there are also ones uh, which are not, um, where you perhaps uh, see uh, the need to have to renegotiate um, everything. Again, going back to the example about um, um, uh, waste provisions or uh, steam um, uh, supply, etc. Um, just having to start from scratch. Perhaps those assets, the less sexy assets, are the ones um, where you see a lot higher rate of attrition and where you need um, perhaps uh, operational uh, personnel to be able to help with the nitty gritty. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to, to make. And that obviously throws up a lot of challenges in kind of just diligencing the business, I suppose, all of that side of it. Um, were there any other challenges, Min, that, that you feel tend to, to come up in carve-outs um, that we didn't mention in that interview with Tristan? Yeah, so uh, one point uh, that was uh, that came across to me was having to... is. Uh, having to do deal with unions, um, private equity, whether that might be in the US or perhaps more particularly in Germany, um, are seen by perhaps uh, many unions, at least on the surface, as vultures who will close down their plants and lay people off. So it's very important for private equity firms to be um, very open and transparent about our intentions their intentions and not give oxygen to speculations and negative rumors and the like, emphasizing the track records and, um, you know, putting some of their words into contracts. Um, one point that uh, came across to me uh, for some PE firms um, um, having uh, recently bought assets, uh, Carvel assets is to emphasize that, um, it's not 
the PE's decision that they are sold, but rather it's the former parents that decided um, that a particular unit um, has to be sold and hence why they are there. Um, a lot of PEs, um, as you can imagine, um, stresses that um, the union's interests are very similar to PEs, making sure that um, the business has a long-term future. Um, and perhaps sometimes, or uh, perhaps as uh, in many cases, involve uh, job retention. So those are uh, points that I think um, PEs um, who are looking to delve into this area need to um, think hard about. Yes, and I think that communication side is something that obviously private equity firms are very well versed in and where it benefits from having long term experience and solid infrastructure in terms of kind of getting that strategy out there because you have to be fairly public facing when you are communicating with, with unions, um, et cetera, of course. And you mentioned, Min, that actually the PE interests align quite well in many cases with, with a union in the sense that they want the company to have, um, you know, uh, longevity. And that made me think about the whole, um, you know, question of where capital for these deals is coming from, because clearly a lot of it uh, is via, uh, in the case of GPs, institutional funds with long-term institutional LPs. I wanted to ask you if you're seeing, um, you know, any uptick in LP interest in carve-out strategies, or what what might drive LPs to take a look at, at strategies like that in the current environment, given the rising cost of capital we've seen over the past, you know, year and, and a bit. And the uh, general, you know, shift in emphasis on value creation that we've spoken about on this podcast before. What's your take on that? Well, uh, Carvel um, GPs themselves are saying that um, they have been seeing an uptick in interest, um, at least um, since the early part of this year. Um, they they cite that uh, LPs are telling them that uh, they are overly concerned about um, being too overly indexed to growth strategies um, and value players are keen to focus on purely on EBITDA growth and unlike um, growth strategies on um, multiple expansions to get strong returns. Yes. And obviously, um, private equity is forever saying that, you know, now is a good time to be doing deals. There's been lots of thoughts around whether 2023 or 2024 are good vintages, but, you know, time, time will tell over the next 10 years or so, um, whether, whether this is proven right. But clearly there's a lot of, uh, buy side appetite in the current, uh, against the current macro backdrop for carve outs. And thank you, Min, for taking the time to speak to me about this topic today. It's been great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's been, uh, it's been real fun. And thank you, listener, of course, for tuning in. If you like the podcast, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple or Spotify. And we'll see you again in the next episode.